Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm your host, Rob Warner, and today I'm joined by staff reporters Maxwell Madden, Jack Harris, and site publisher Chris Cartman. Fellas, how are we doing today? Doing great, Rob. Thanks for asking. I wanted to say the full L with Max today. I'm, I'm doing good. I, I don't have a weirdly spelled name, so can't do that. Max doesn't even know this yet, but it's just a coincidence that your San Diego State credential has two L's, even though I submitted one. <laughs> Well, they, they were probably like, man, this kid doesn't even know how to spell his name. Yeah, they, they thought Chris must have been wrong I, I spelling his reporter's name. No, 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 that's definitely a typo. <laughs> it's, it's actually, a, it's unique, Jack, is the yes, correct word you're looking for. It's like a brand on Twitter that you have. It's yeah. totally a brand. It's unique, all part of the brand. Unique is so overused. Okay, let's go. All right, so getting in, though, to Arizona State, 16-13 over then-ranked number 15 Michigan State. The Sun Devils now find themselves ranked 23rd in the most recent AP poll, which came out the day after ASU's win. ASU went from receiving zero votes to being ranked this next week. Other Pac-12 teams ranked. Washington is number 10, Oregon at 20, USC at number 22. Utah received the most votes of any team not in the top 25, and Colorado and Washington State also received votes. Can I just make one interjection here? Yeah. I love, I um, love it. So on, in our Thursday podcast, we make, which is for our members, we make predictions on the, the games and against the spread. Uh, we did pretty good in this last week. So if you want to get some insight, if you you know like to make some wagering, or you just want to have theoretical that, wagering, yeah, or, or yeah, whatever, like just think about <laughs> wagering, uh, that may be for you. As some quick notes on ASU's win over Michigan State. The win uh, against then 15 Michigan State was ASU's third win against a top 15 team in this century for ASU. ASU defeated number five. Washington last year 13 to 7 and beat number 8 Notre Dame 55 to 13 back in 2014. Those, Guys, those are just at, at home. Yeah, the, uh, the wins at home. Yeah, excuse okay. me. The wins at home. What were some of the key plays you guys thought were, were really crucial in this game? Well, I think I'm going to go with the obvious one, uh, the 27-yard touchdown pass to Nikhil Harry in the fourth quarter that tied the game. You know, Manny Wilkins had missed a lot of his downfield throws uh, heading into that play. And uh, you know, Rob Likens uh, described it as uh well, I'll read, the, I'll read the whole quote here. It said, when, he, when Nikhil caught that pass, I told him to tell the guys in the field that the water, the dam is about to break. I don't know if it broke, but it leaked a little bit, didn't it? Uh, so I think that that was a pretty key turning point in the game, not not only for ASU to you know actually be able to tie it, but to finally you know manage that, that big play they were looking for all game. Yeah, a couple of plays come to mind. I think um, on all three of those possessions Michigan State had where they got inside the red zone uh, and didn't score, Rennell right. Wren... Made a made a big play in each of those to kind of stall out their drives, um, including the play that kind of led to L.J. Scott's injury, which clearly affected the way Michigan State played the rest of the game. Um, I, I think uh, the play before Nikhil's Harry's touchdown catch, uh, the Kyle Williams just getting open and a, and a busted coverage in the zone, that was big. That was their biggest play of the night. Um, and I think up until that point, ASU had been trying to take deep shots, but they, you know, Manny Wilkins was overthrowing some receivers and. I mean, they, they were moving the ball well. I think they got across the 50 in like eight of their 10 drives or something. Um, but that was kind of the big play that I, I think helped open things up. Um, and then two plays that that could have been in the fourth quarter um, when Manny Wilkins fumbles and Raekwon Williams doesn't pick it up for Michigan State. That, would, that could have been a huge turning point. And then on Michigan State's last drive of the game, um, when they punt the ball, they had a false start penalty on that last punt. And Mark D'Antonio talked about this after the game. Um, they had a false start penalty on that punt. Had that not happened, 
when you watch the play, how it played out, ASU probably would have been called for a roughing the punter that would have extended that drive, and then who knows what happens and if ASU gets the ball back. Um, so I, I think, especially in the fourth quarter, a lot of those plays kind of broke ASU's way, which you know the Herm Edwards talked about after the game with, with penalties and things like that. He said he thought the Spartans were worn down in the heat and things like that. Um, but yeah, lots of big plays there when, when you kind of go over the game. Uh, three plays, and... Not the not the plays that everyone will talk about in this game, but are, I think are still very important nonetheless. Uh, one, ASU going to four wide receivers, Michigan State having 12 men on the field and unsure how to defend, Definitely. which led to a timeout, which then precipitated the way that the game ended. Um, the other another um, play that was. Um, uh, a setup play. So, so everyone's going to talk about what happened at the end of the game, but uh, uh, the play that didn't happen was the timeout at when ASU was about to run a play. So, two plays that didn't happen right. were important. And then here's one more play that actually did happen, and that um, not not this game wasn't the same, you know, magnitude or the same emotional appeal of the jail Mary game. But people will remember going back to 2014 in that the game where, where Jalen strong caught the touchdown. Mm-hmm. There was a, a game, there was a extending play by Gary chambers. That was a, that was a remarkable catch before that, that Jalen strong uh, touchdown reception that set it up, that enabled that play to happen. Well, in this game, there was a, Eno Benjamin, Reception on third and eight earlier on in the drive, right. where Rob Lykin saved the play call, I believe, all the way up until that point in the game, just for such an occasion where they basically ran three receivers on the field side away from where the ball ended up going. You know, Benjamin came across the formation uh, into space and he was wide open, and that kind of put them in position to where they could continue to salt out the clock mm-hmm. and then kick the field goal. And Benjamin made a nice move on that play because it looked like he there was going to be a chance for, I believe it was Bocce Jr. to make a tackle. It, was it not Bocce Jr.? I don't think it was on that play. I, I, think, I think you're talking about earlier. No, no, no. On that play, there was a Michigan State defender that was going to be tackling him right near the sticks, and he broke that tackle. Oh. And kept yeah, yeah. going. I believe yeah, yeah. it was Bocce Jr., but I, I, I agree with you. That was a very crucial play call. Um, I'm going to say the interception by Daz Tadalatasi, obviously, as one of mine. Tyler Johnson's blocked punt. Yeah, I'd that say, was big. Good good point. I'd say that was a, a very big play. And then I'm going to actually go with Manny Wilkins staying in bounds on that running play later on in the game. Um, I thought that was a really smart job by him. Even when it didn't seem like ASU had decided on what they were going to do at the end of the game, he made a very heads-up play by staying in bounds there. And one more thing on that play, um, Nikhil Harry was in the slot and laid a really nice downfield block, which has been a point of emphasis for him this whole camp, and you saw it there, um, all almost like a Larry Fitzgerald type play when you watch the Cardinals that right. kind of allowed... Uh, Manny to, to get to the sticks on that play. So many big plays in that game. That there we, really were. We all just listed <laughs> totally different plays yeah. that, uh, like you said, that that block punt, Tyler Johnson, the, the, the field would have been flipped there right. and said ASU gets the ball around its 40-yard line and then is quickly scores after that. Yeah, I think it was an interesting game for the lack of points, how uh, right. almost like a chess match at times with the way that the, the game played out, which isn't usual um, when you think about Pac-12 football. Or college football in general. I mean, Herm Edwards was talking about that as well yesterday, Jack. Moving on, though, to a full breakdown of the offense. ASU had 424 yards of total offense, 380 through the air. Manny Wilkins went 30 of 48 for 380 yards, one touchdown. Obviously, the one that Max referenced to Nikhil Harry, one interception. He was targeting Brandon Ayuk and threw the ball a little bit high. Only 44 yards on the ground. 
Eno Benjamin, 13 carries for 27 yards. We mentioned how he got involved late in the short passing game. Manny Wilkins carried eight times for 25 yards. He had a little more success doing that. Obviously, some of those numbers are skewed with him getting sacked a couple times during that game. How did you guys evaluate how Manny Wilkins did, though? Uh, I thought he played well, especially when ASU transitioned in the second half. Uh, and obviously, as we mentioned before, switched to that 10 personnel. I mean, the stat line looks pretty solid, you know, even after a, a first half in which he kind of struggled, uh, 30 for 48 for 380 yards and a touchdown. He did have that one pick uh, when he was targeting Brandon Ayuk, but, um, I mean, the quarterback rating, also 131.7, speaks for itself. I think that he, he made the throws that he needed to, even though he missed on, on a good amount of those deep throws early on that could have really swung the game in ASU's favor. Uh, I thought he rebounded and made a really nice throw to Nikhil Harry, uh, you know, executed that, you know, Benjamin kind of swing pass properly and, you know, found Kyle Williams down the stretch on a really, really important play. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of that. Um, you know, the, the, the deep balls weren't there for a lot of the game. Um, but the thing that that Manny Wilkins does better than I think a lot of quarterbacks is when, when those passes aren't there, he's not pressing. Um, you know, he on those deep passes, when he's missing them, he is missing them as overthrows and not underthrowing them where they can be picked off. Um, and then he did hit the big throws when he needed to late in the game. Uh, and he also, I thought, read Michigan State's defense well. You know, you didn't see him really make a lot of risky throws aside from the one that got picked off when he was getting pressured. Um, again, it, it kind of showed that even when he's not at his best, he can still be effective for this team. He's been really steady, and really since the beginning of last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just doesn't really make a lot of mistakes. The one interception, he was pressured, and but that that's an early down situation, and you 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 really can't put that ball into any kind of jeopardy, and it was an overthrow. So that that was that was a, a rare mistake. Uh, the overthrows mentioned by Max, I think that was definitely a factor. The ASU was trying to to take the top off the defense, open it up a little bit, and that actually, even though they weren't successful on those, other than the Harry play. Uh, remember, Frank Darby missed that fade that was eerily similar to the week before that he caught. That was a really right. nice play. But if they had a couple of those, it would have opened it up more. But it still had the effect of forcing a certain type of coverage that they were able to take advantage. And Wilkins was under pressure most of the night. He was only sacked twice, though. Uh, but the right guard position seemed like it was kind of causing a lot of problems, not just for Manny Wilkins in the passing game, but also uh, for the for the running game, obviously we, we just talked about it, only 44 yards on the ground. How did you guys think the offensive line did in, in allowing the passing game to get going as well as the running game? Yeah, and Rob, you mentioned, you know, adjusting for sacks, uh, you know, 55 total yards uh, rushing for ASU in this game. They were averaging two. I think that we, we understood that Michigan State had a solid defensive front and that this was going to be likely and Manny Wilkins was going to end up throwing the ball maybe not 48 times. Uh, but we understood ASU was going to struggle in that regard. As Chris noted before the game, obviously losing Miller and Robertson was a struggle, and it didn't look like Cade Cody and Roy Hemsley were really up to par with the way that Miller had played so far this season. You know, Then again, it was effective enough. I think Manny had really good uh, awareness in the pocket and was able to make the plays when he needed to. It wasn't great, but as, as Herm Edwards noted uh, yesterday on Monday, that he expects Miller to be back, so that should be a boost for ASU moving forward. I think it's pretty typical of how we we saw the offensive line perform um, during the preseason, which was, uh, you know, they they struggled at times with speed rushes off the edge. Um, You know, Michigan State's defensive front, that's just a very elite defensive front they're playing. It's not a surprise to me that they didn't open up a lot of holes. I thought what ASU did well is uh, they found other ways, like run replacements with Eno Benjamin in the screen game Mm -hmm. and some of the swing passes they threw to him and things like that. 
Um, but I thought they were like they were good enough. There weren't a ton of free rushers coming at Wilkins. He did have to move around a lot in the pocket. Um, but again, like facing that front that Michigan State brings, that's not something ASU is going to have to do very often this year. There was only two sacks that uh, ASU gave up. Manny Wilkins did a good job of avoiding some others. Seven tackles for loss in the first half mm-hmm. that ASU gave up, only two in the, se- in the second half. So a much better performance in the second half. You could say that maybe the just wearing down and not having as much energy, uh, Michigan State players in the second half, maybe was a factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, ASU maybe sort of regrouping on some of its protections. Um, I, I think it's, football's a numbers game. Michigan State is going to load the box and – if you're not going to be able to run the football, then you got to be able to get the ball out onto the perimeter with some of these run replacement type type things. And, and they did that in this game. They they were successful getting the ball on a lot of the bubble concepts and and the swings to Eno Benjamin. And and you know it, it, ultimately it's really hard to defend the entirety of the field if you're taking right. deep shots, if you're stretching the field all the way horizontally, and you're trying to load the box. Something is going to start opening up, and right. it did in that second half. In your eyes, Chris, how big was the absence though of those two guys of, of Zach Robertson and Steve Miller? Well, it, it definitely limits what they can do as far as the breadth of their their run game. Mm-hmm. You just can't get into space the way that you can with Steve Miller. They still did run some of these guard pulls. Um, and some zone and some man stuff, but uh, and I thought I thought Hemsley for really his first major action in a long time because mm-hmm. he hardly played at USC. Right. He kind of held his own against a pretty good team. Uh, K. Cody to me wasn't quite as good. Um, actually, today in practice we saw on Tuesday as we were recording this we saw that Alex Osoya, who in my opinion didn't play quite as well as he did in the opener, um, he was down with the second team and they had they put Roy Hemsley mm-hmm. with the first team at left guard and Steve Miller was back at right guard. So they're gonna seems like they're gonna look at that. Zach Robertson is coming along. You're still trying to figure it out. Game one, game right. two, it's new staff, you know. So, right. um, but they did okay. They did okay. And for the wide receivers, Kyle Williams, Max mentioned it, how he had a big game. Seven receptions for 104 yards. His career high is 121. He set last year in ASU's loss uh, against USC. Nikhil Harry, six catches, highlighted by the 27-yard touchdown. He had 89 yards in the game. Eno Benjamin, while he only had 27 yards rushing the ball, he ended up with 54 yards on the air uh, through through six receptions. Uh, The longest one was 25, that last play that we were – referencing a little while ago. And then Ryan Newsom, uh, he talked to me earlier earlier this week or earlier last week as ASU was preparing for Michigan State, and he he uh, had three receptions for 45 yards. He kind of had a, a, a big influence, in my opinion, in some of the later part of that game and making some big-time catches when they needed to. Max, you wrote an article about how ASU did a lot more 10 personnel in the second half and how that was so much more effective. What did you see kind of in that in those situations? Uh, before we jump to that, I think it's note I think we should note that that Kyle Williams, if you listen to the premium podcast last week, it should be no surprise that he was successful against the Michigan State defense. I think that we a lot of what we saw in the film against Utah State was them allowing a lot of underneath uh, stuff. They they really the Spartans really struggled in, in zone coverage against the Yaggies and Kyle Williams was built for success to sneak underneath, especially on his, uh, I think it was a 38-yard play, where he was wide, wide open on the side that really, really swung uh, the end of that game. And Rob, to get to your point about 10-11 to 11 personnel, um, I, I think it's really important that, that ASU fans go back and read the article that we put together. Uh, credit to Kevin Stewart for putting together a lot of our um, you know, putting together a lot of our instant analysis and snap counts and personnel packages. So 
on in 11 personnel when the Sun Devils ran that uh, on Saturday night, they gained 3.9 yards per play and five chunk plays. Whereas in 10 personnel, uh, ASU had nine yards per play and seven chunk plays. Uh, as we mentioned before at the beginning uh, of the second half, ASU came out right away with four wide receivers, uh, three really successful plays, and San Diego State was forced to take a timeout. I mean, it's rare, or sorry, not San Diego State, Michigan State, but it's rare that you see a Power 5 team, especially one as traditionally good as Michigan State, be really rattled and kind of tilted on the field and having to step back and prepare for that. Um, I think, you know, as, as Manny Wilkins mentioned, that Michigan State hadn't seen them do a lot of that. Uh, and and Utah State also was able to do that effectively against Michigan State. But Rob, absolutely right. Uh, the switch to 10 personnel was one of the keys to why ASU won that game. Yeah, I think some of the things you saw um, were Michigan State realized pretty quickly that their that star linebacker was just not going to be able to, to cover slot receivers in the alley. Um, and then the big change, in addition to ASU switching to 10 personnel, was that they were putting Nikhil Harry in the slot. Um, that forced a whole lot of changes for Michigan State's defense. From that point forward, they started playing a lot more nickel packages. You saw uh, Justin Lane, uh, their cornerback, start moving to the inside to cover Nikhil Harry. Um, and they, they, they played a lot more man freeze with only one safety right. over the top instead of two. And where you really saw that was on Nikhil Harry's touchdown because it allowed him to get in man-on-man isolation even when he went back out to the perimeter. Um, basically, they, they kind of – they just – they, they pressured Michigan State to get out of what they normally like to do. Um, I think the big difference, like when you look at how Arizona State played it compared to what uh, Utah State did a week ago, is you have a weapon in Akeel Harry that can force some of that change, and ASU took more deep shots mm-hmm. to kind of exploit when Michigan State switched out of, uh, of their of their base kind of normal uh, uh, packages that they like to run. So, yeah, that was a huge switch. And like the, the stats that Max just said, those are pretty incredible um, to see – yardage difference is that big based solely on personnel and one quick thing on what you said Nikhil Harry in the slot we also predicted that that would happen a lot on the premium podcast so for all you guys listening to this one the premium podcast previews each each of ASU's games and really gives in-depth analysis of what ASU could be doing and what ASU could be facing so make sure to tune into those those usually come out each Thursday so just keep tuning into those Chris sorry you can have the floor again oh yeah so I was just going to say the tight end position in the first game was the worst graded pretty substantially. Mm-hmm. Um, and and from a blocking standpoint, those guys were losing their reps pretty consistently. They're not really much of a threat in the receiving game. And so you can just defend differently when, when those guys are on the field, even if they're split out wide like, they, like ASU was doing at, at some points. They had two catches in the game for 15 yards, right? But, yep. but what happened was... As Jack said, when when Michigan State sort of changed defensively into a lot of these man-free, single high-safety looks, ASU was able to exploit that with some vertical shots that were higher percentage variety than Akil Harry, Kyle Williams along the seam. Uh, they got uh, Brandon Ayuk was getting more involved. Right. And then they also had the flat. So when ASU was running those vertical concepts, now all of a sudden you're slipping guys and there's more space in, on the underneath side of the field that you can't really do as much with the tight end out there with, you know, the way that they have their, it's schemed up. So I think, I think, I almost think that they, that Rob Lykin should have been doing some of that earlier on in the game, even more so, and just accepting, okay, we're not going to really get a lot done with our tight end out here today. And Chris, I think something else that we should mention, uh, the Lykins went after early in the game were were a lot of boundary throws, Mm -hmm. you know, back shoulder sort of boundary throws to Frank Darby, which I'm not sure ever worked. No, game. two times Manny Wilkins got really frustrated. Three times. 
Oh, was it? no! Yeah, I, think, I thought I thought time. one was Chapman. No, I, yeah, mm-hmm. I I think three times it was. It Darby was three times. Was I was one. watching yeah. it back yesterday. The three one, times he got visibly upset with Darby. The first time Darby was supposed to run the route to eight yards depth, and he was about two yards beyond that. The ball sails right behind him. Manny Wilkins holds up, look at me, and then he says eight yards. Like you got to be eight yards. The two, I think that's a good point, Max, because Nikhil Harry is so good on those back shoulder fades. And it just looks kind of so natural between him and, and Manny Wilkins. And people think, oh, well, that's just normal. You just go and you throw it eight yards and the guy beats the defender and turns around. And and ASU fans know that that there was a similar chemistry with Jalen Strong and Taylor Kelly. They had the same thing. They usually ran it even deeper, like more like about a, about 13 or 14 yards. Um, so... When you th- when you throw Darby out there, and ASU was doing it because they were you know making sure that they had safety coverage over the top of Harry and whatever, but the back shoulder still was going to be open. Like you're still he's going up against Lane. Lane's a better defender and all that stuff, but you just can't reliably where the development is at with Chapman or Darby expect that you're going to get in game situations against pretty good defensive backs. Mm-hmm. That route run to the exact right depth and the timing to be exactly where it needs to be. And so I think that they learned from this game, okay, we have to maybe kind of scale back some of that stuff. And Chris, after watching back the film now, how do you evaluate the offense's performance of this game? Uh, you have to keep in mind, Michigan State returned like eight or nine starters on defense, had one guy out injured, freshman played well at, at one of the end spots. Yeah, no, I mean, who was the – I can think of his name right now, but the guy who replaced their other end. Oh, the Campbell guy, he, I think is – Oh, right. Something like that. So, but anyway, sorry about that. But I wasn't expecting I was going to be talking about him today. <laughs> but no, but – Camper. Jack Camper. 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 He played, he played pretty well. Mm-hmm. But the point is, is that this is a defense that was uh, second in the country against the run last year, seventh overall nationally, returns three quarters or more of its of its starters. So you can't really anticipate that you're going to go out there and light the world on fire when you're playing against them, right. even, even returning Manny Wilkins and all these other pieces. So ASU ended up with 5.5 yards per play, 424 total yards. That's pretty good. I mean, like, yeah, okay, they didn't run the ball all that well, but nobody does against Michigan State the way that they play the game. Um, you know, Penn State last year uh, with a Heisman Trophy winner had 50-something yards rushing. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, I'd, give, I'd give ASU like a solid B to a B-plus grade. Shifting from the offense to the defense, Michigan State's junior quarterback Brian Lewerke went 29 of 37 passing for 314 yards, one touchdown, one interception. And the Spartans rushed 27 times for just 63 yards. It was their lowest since 2016. Senior Tillman safety Dasmond Tautalatasi intercepted Lewerke on a tipped pass in the end zone. He was about five yards deep in the end zone, returned the ball. Edwards said Monday he was <laughs> unsure about the status of Tautalatasi going into this weekend against San Diego State. He Senior- also said he wished somebody would have tackled him in the end zone before he started bringing <laughs> meaning, it out. Meaning one of his own players. Yes, yes. Uh, senior Tillman safety Jalen Harvey led the team in tackles with 10. Evan Fields did not play in the game. Taron Adams, Sherry Crosswell looked a little shaky um, at, at Field Ranger. Guys, how did you think the Tillman position and the Rangers did this week? Um, I think on the field side, you, you make a good point. Uh, Shari Crosswell and uh, Langston Frederick both got beat a couple times when they were in man. They had a tough time dealing with Cody White, uh, Michigan State's sophomore receiver who moved around the formation a little bit. He's a pretty good player. Uh, and, you know, those are two young guys for ASU that were in coverage that, that had, you know, a somewhat tough time trying to deal with him. Uh, but I thought on the other side, the, the boundary side, DeMonte King was good. 
uh, played pretty close to the line of scrimmage a lot. He had one really good tackle on Brian Lewerke in the open field. Uh, Chase Lucas missed a couple tackles in run defense, but uh, overall did a did a pretty good job against Felton Davis. I think there's only one time Davis really beat him in man-on-man. I was struck by a few things. Uh, the tackle distribution, especially in the first half, was crazy. Mm-hmm. It was like nobody had more than six tackles, I think, and like more than a dozen guys had tackles easily. Um, Jalen Harvey played well. He's still out there just kind of instinctually flying around. Mm-hmm. But uh, when Daz Tatalatasi went out and with Evan Field still coming back from the hamstring, he was very physical and playing hard coming up against the run, made a lot of plays. I thought that the the Ranger position, as you mentioned there, Rob, was a little bit shaky between Langs and Frederick and then Ashari Crosswell, uh, Taron Adams at that corner position, getting some reps. And, and uh, Danny Gonzalez said, look, we know we're going to have some mistakes with some of these guys, but we need to sort of accelerate their development. And so they're not afraid whatsoever to get them out there in key situations, play guys, keep them fresh. Um, I thought the coverage at times was was a little bit shaky and guys weren't exactly where they were supposed to be uh, i'm sure that gonzalez is probably a little bit frustrated with that but but it's a, it's it definitely a work in progress but for them to be able to win a game like this and still feel like they have a lot more room to to improve that's sort of the big picture takeaway and just piggybacking off uh, chris's comments about harvey there uh, one of the big plays i think we forgot to mention at the beginning of the podcast was two snaps before lewerke's interception Jalen Harvey raced down the sideline and saved a touchdown, uh, which, I mean, at that point, if Michigan State goes up 10, it's probably a completely different game. Yeah, and senior outside linebacker J.J. Wilson played in his first game after being suspended, a team rules violation. Uh, Not a big impact, one tackle, half of a tackle for loss. And the ASU defense, no sacks, two TFLs in the first half. Rennell Run seemed like he was dominating more in the second half, as Jack mentioned early on in this podcast. And then there was that crucial sequence late in the fourth quarter, the back-to-back sacks. Uh, Merlin Robertson and Darius Slade combined on one, and then Robertson uh, on the second, the, the play after. And it was very impressive what the, the freshman was able to do in that sequence, and it seemed like that was a huge turning point for this defense. Yeah, that was a big moment because uh, it led to that ASU getting the ball back and then them being able to go on that last drive with five minutes left. Um, I thought the best thing the linebackers did Saturday was they really kept Lewerke in the pocket for the most part. I think there was only one play where he was able to escape and extend a play and hit a receiver downfield. And we mm-hmm. talked about it um, in the premium podcast leading up to the game that Brian Lewerke's at his best when he's moving, he's improvising, his receivers are getting open kind of when the coverage breaks down. Um, and so for ASU's front, to be able to, it seemed like, follow their assignments, not rush too far up the field. Um, they only had the two sacks on that sequence, but it didn't really matter because they were able to to keep him and force him to throw from the pocket, which is not his strong suit. Merlin Robertson earned the Walter Camp Defensive Player of the Week, which was the f- first player since Jalen Strong in the JL Mary game in, in 2014 and um, the first freshman to win it in forever. And I think the first defensive player ASU's had win that award too. Yeah, so so and that's a pretty good start for a true freshman. He had mm-hmm. uh, nine tackles. He had the one-and-a-half sacks, the one yep. that he shared, the back-to-back plays, knocked the ball out, yep. which, was, which was a huge play. Um, you know, there there were a number of performances. You mentioned, of course, um, what Rennell Wren did 
he just dominated the center on on multiple key plays. Really? The one that he yeah. that he knocked Lewerke back that that totally disrupted that short yardage thing that led to turnover on mm-hmm. downs. Or did they have to punt after that? It was a punt. A punt. Was yeah, a punt. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was so third and one. They did. Yep. They, yeah, right. Um, yeah. I mean, there's just a lot that you can take from that 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 um, that were positive signs for the, the ASU's development on defense. And, and one thing that really kind of surprised me about how the game played out is after another one of those Wren kind of blowing up the middle of the play thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, LJ Scott got hurt, twisted an ankle apparently. Right. Michigan State stopped running it up the middle. Like they just didn't really do it that much the rest of the game, which yeah. was which was strange to see because that's their bread and butter. We talked about it coming into the game. They want to get four or five yards of carry between the tackles and they, they just went away from it. Like Brian Lewerke right. should not be throwing as many passes as he did in that game. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that Michigan State's rush total was so low because for most of the second half, they were doing a lot of sweeps and, and outside stuff, but they weren't pounding it up the middle nearly as much as you'd expect them to. Yeah, I mean, Connor Hayward was used a lot more as a pass catcher after Scott got injured. And you saw, like you said, Jack, not much running up the middle, but really not much running at all after that. It seemed like they kind of handed the offense over to Lewerke and were like, here, here's what you're going to do. Um and, that, and that's playing ahead for most of the game. Mm-hmm. Playing ahead for most of the game, team still had 63 yards on 27 carries, right. and that's with a mobile quarterback right. in Lewerke who has the ability to beat you with his feet. So that that's a really impressive thing. There was no mm-hmm. – they had Jalen Naylor on a – and a couple other jet sweeps that mm-hmm. were that were that were successful, right. and they had those those kind of screens to the back, mm-hmm. uh, two plays in particular yeah. that were kind of their, their better plays, uh, and then they hits on some some spot routes, you know, some hitches that were that were just kind of quick actions against some zones, but really not a lot of big plays. And mm-hmm. and ASU fans have been so just used to giving up these really big explosive plays that have been crippling in games mm-hmm. over the last few seasons. Even though it got better last season, you just, you know, you can't say enough about the job that for the, how, how new that this defensive staff is, that they just weren't giving up chunk plays like that. Right. And some of the conditions going into the game, it was 100 degrees out. Officially at kickoff, uh, Michigan State potentially worn down by the conditions. Herm Edwards and the players after the game referenced the, the timeout that Michigan State took late in uh, the first half at the very at the conclusion of the first half when they took a timeout when they could have just run the clock out. Uh, D'Antonio said after the game he didn't think the heat was a factor, but it seems like it did play some kind of a role in maybe fatigue. Well, there's no doubt that they were that they felt like buying more time was more of an advantage for them than ASU. Otherwise, why why would you do it? Because it's a long walk down from the press box, so of course. Like, come yeah. on. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's they admitted yeah. through their actions. They're not going to verbally say that. Yeah. They admitted it through their actions. And so this game, uh, fewest or fewer rushing yards than ASU allowed during any single game last season. Uh, Lewerke didn't have a big impact scrambling like we thought that he might be able to if he was successful in Michigan State came out and won this football game. But Chris, after watching the film back, how would you evaluate how the defense did? Um, overall, pretty solid. You gave up 13 points mm-hmm. to Michigan State. They had that one long drive. Of course, you know they left some points on the board because the interception. But Darian Butler forced that play. Came running through the back, got at Lewerke a couple times. Lewerke was hit as he was throwing the ball. That sort of disrupted their ability to be able to make plays. And they did corral him in the pocket largely, as Jack said. Um, so so even though it wasn't a great game and Michigan State had 377 yards and would typically get more than 13 points out of that, uh, there's only that one big, long touchdown completion that was made. Um 
on by Scott, right? Scott made the completion on mm-hmm. on Frederick. Cody White against Oh, Cody Frederick. White. It was, yes. Sorry, yeah. Cody White on Frederick, right. Other than that, and then the one other kind of play that they gave up that was a pass play, it just really wasn't that much. And so, so again, with how many new and young players are not just playing but also trying to figure it out together on the field – that was that was a pretty impressive game. So ASU begins this season two and zero. In contrast, Arizona University of Arizona, led by Kevin Sumlin in his first year, stark contrast. Yeah, they're zero and two, and they haven't looked very good in either one of their games. Blown out by Houston in this past game, guys. What's our perspective of what this kind of a win does for this program? You know, I think I, I think the big thing is um, it proved to people who. We're, we're, we're still doubting that, that Herm couldn't handle uh, just, you know, being a college coach. I think it just kind of shows that it, what they're doing isn't that crazy, um, that they can still, against a good, solid team, put together a game plan, execute the game plan, um, you know, make plays late. Uh, you know, Herm was put in a, in a tricky clock management situation at the end, and they handled it almost to perfection to be able to kill the last five minutes of the game which you only have to look as far as the Colorado-Nebraska game this weekend to see how mismanaging those those situations can hurt you. Um, I'm not sure if I'm ready to to say that they're going to win. I, I picked them to win six games before the season. You know, I think more than anything, if, if that number is going up, it's because of how poor the rest of the Pac-12 South has looked. Um, but I think it just shows that they've entered the season prepared. They're, they're able to, you know, compete at a high level against good teams, which I think – following the program this offseason closely like we did we kind of figured that was the case people who didn't are probably pretty surprised with how this is with how this is playing out and my quick perspective on this i won't go as long as jack but my perspective is just um you know wow as jack well jack, you're, you're so long <laughs> no i mean just as you were saying everybody was skeptical of this hire and everybody was skeptical that herm edwards was going to be able to do anything successful basically in coaching college football and what i thought was my biggest takeaway my biggest perspective about this game was that in such a crucial situation in a late game situation he was the, one of the only ones in the asu coaching staff full of you know, coaches that have coached in college football for many years that knew exactly what he wanted to do. I mean, he knew it when Rob Likens didn't even know what the plan was. And that, to me, just shows a lot of, of what he's capable of and what people need to understand is that, you know, we, we Chris, we, we were talking about it yesterday and how a lot of teams can blow late-game situations, and I think he took control for ASU and was a very big reason why they ended up winning that game. We're going to have a long story about the end-game situation on the site that I think everybody should check out. Uh, the difference in what you're talking about there, Rob, is Rob Likens hasn't been a head coach. When you're a head coach, especially nine years or however many years it was in the NFL, uh, and then being an analyst and evaluating all those endgame situations, that's that's what you should have the perspective to be able to do. Now, mm-hmm. my big picture kind of situation here is, uh, as Jack said, the Pac-12 South isn't that strong. ASU's probably as good as anybody mm-hmm. we'll see what happens the rest of the year um, they have momentum buy-in from the players as a result of this wrote a column about what that provides to your program recruiting the way that players feel about what they're doing and all that but also it's important to point out Dennis Erickson in his first season as ASU's coach started 8-0 and then he was 23-31 and the rest of his tenure so there's still a lot of things that you have to sort of watch and continue to evaluate, but uh, but this was a very 
as probably about as good as you could hope for a first two game experience with Herm Edwards. So you're not already buying your plane tickets to go cover the the college football playoff? No, <laughs> I think we're going to hold off on that for for, oh, for probably until like uh, December. Okay. <laughs> All right. Just wanted, to, just wanted to make sure. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. But as Chris said, a lot of good stories that we're working on that will be out this this week. Uh, so make sure to check those out. Premium podcast will be airing later on this week. That's going to give you a, a complete breakdown and preview as to what ASU should expect against San Diego State. But right now, alongside Jack Harris and site publisher Chris Cartman, I'm Rob Warner saying so long and thank you for tuning in.